Okay, well, it's, uh, it's great to be here. It's a privilege. Uh, it always is a privilege and a, and a joy to be here. Of course, I'm especially grateful <laughs> uh, to be here this morning since it, it certainly um, didn't look like, uh, well, it looked like I, I might not be able to. It actually started earlier in the week. Um, toward the beginning of the week, my daughter got sick and we were worried that it might be COVID. And so I was sort of thinking that I, I might not be able to be here. Thankfully, she did test negative, um, so it, it, it wasn't COVID. And I feel totally fine. I haven't, haven't had any sort of signs or symptoms of anything. Um, so I, I thought, okay, well, we, we sort of uh, crossed that hurdle, and, and you know, there's nothing more that remains. And then, of course, on the ride down, I, I passed a car uh, that had had an accident. The car was totaled. I actually sort of stopped and, and checked to make sure that the guy was all right. But he said he'd, he'd hit a patch of ice uh, on, the, on the bridge, right? You know, see all those signs, you know, beware, uh, ice on the bridge. I've, I've you know, always read them, but never really sort of thought too much about them. Uh, and I continued on another 20 miles or so, and then they, uh, they'd closed the highway, so I had to leave the highway and, and take a detour. Then I got back on the highway, but they'd closed the highway again, and, uh, and, and I pulled, the, pulled over to the trooper, and he said, all the highways are, are closed. Um, so I, he said, where are you headed? And I said, well, I'm, I said, I'm, I'm the preacher. I'm trying to get to the church before, the, before I need to preach. And he said, well, you know, take these roads, and maybe you'll get there. So... Uh, so, and I, I have, uh, I have a, an emergency prayer uh, list uh, that I text out, and, and I usually use it during the course of, of weekly ministry on campus. Uh, most of you know I, I work at WVU as the, as the campus minister there. I'm, I'm employed by uh, the Presbytery, so I'm your representative uh, to the campus of WVU. And, and in the course of the week, occasionally there are sort of emergency prayer requests that come up, and I have about 50 people um, that I can send a text to saying, you know, I've got this emergency, please uh, say a quick prayer. Um, and so I, I did that. I, I pulled into a gas station. I called Leon um, and uh, told him the situation. And then as soon as I got off the phone, I sent out a text to, uh, to my emergency prayer list and, uh, and then continued on the way. So here I am. Uh, praise God. Thank uh, it's, it's good to be here. And uh, today we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 7. The uh, last number of times I've been here, I've, I've preached in Luke. Uh, these are sermons that I gave uh, to my RUF large group, uh, uh, large group meeting. Uh, so these are sermons that I, that I would preach to the students during our weekly large group meeting. So this is Luke chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 36 to 50. And, uh, and I'm calling this sermon uh, prostitute, and the love or, prostitute and the Pharisee. It sort of sounds like a love story, maybe, you know, one of those Hallmark love stories that you see on TV. Uh, and, and, of course, it, it is a love story. It's just not the love story that we might assume based on the title. Uh, and, and we're going to look at this passage, and we're going to look at it from three different angles. We're going to consider the theological angle. In other words, who is this Jesus, right? As we come to this text, how is, how is the Holy Spirit uh, presenting Jesus through uh, his servant Luke, who wrote this story, right? Who is this Jesus? And then the social angle, what, what kind of community is, is Jesus forming? And then the individual angle, which is what is my place in all of this? Or in other words, what, I, what, what should I believe? What should I believe about Jesus? 
Uh, and, and how should I treat others in light of that fact? And then finally, how should I think about myself and God uh, in relation to, uh, to all this? So Luke chapter 7, I'm going to start with verse uh, 36 and continue on to the end of the chapter. This is God's holy and inerrant word to us uh, because we are his children and he loves us. So Luke chapter, 36, chapter 7, verses 36 and following. One of the Pharisees asked him, that is Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at, at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster, alabaster, alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let me pray for the preaching of God's word. Dear Jesus, we give you thanks uh, for the opportunity to be here this morning, something that uh, particularly on this morning I don't take for granted. And we give you thanks uh, for bringing us together to hear your word, uh, to hear you speak to us uh, words of, of encouragement, words of uh, conviction and exhortation uh, through uh, this, your holy and inspired word. And I pray that you would uh, use our time together as we study this passage uh, to encourage us, to convict us, and to draw us closer to yourself. We pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, so as we said, as I said, we're going to be looking at uh, this text from three different angles. And the first is the theological angle. Who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus? And you see that question uh, right at the end of the text, right? Verse 49, the, the, the people in the story, the, the crowds who are surrounding, ask that question themselves. They say, who is this? Who is this Jesus who forgives sins? And in fact, uh, earlier on in Luke's uh, gospel, in fact, earlier on in chapter 7, 
John the Baptist asks, asks a similar question. Verse 19 and 20, John the Baptist sends his disciples to Jesus to ask them, uh, or, or for them to ask Jesus by what authority he does these things and whether or not he is the one to come or if they should look for another. In other words, John the Baptist is asking Jesus, who are you? Are you the Messiah? And I think that question underlines a lot of, of, of Simon's interactions with Jesus earlier in the passage. Right? So we're, we're first introduced to Simon uh, by, uh, by learning that he is a Pharisee. And if you, if you know anything about Pharisees, you've grown up in the church, or if you've been reading Luke's gospel from, from the beginning until this point, when someone is introduced as a Pharisee, you're already a little bit suspicious of them, right? You're already a little bit on your guard thinking, okay, this is, this is probably an unsavory character, right? And so Luke introduces us to Simon by telling us uh, that he is a Pharisee. And yet, he's, he's a Pharisee who's apparently willing to invite Jesus into his home. So perhaps this is a Pharisee who's, who's maybe not yet fully made up his mind about Jesus. Right? He's heard of all of the, the miracles that Jesus has performed. He's heard that Jesus has cast out demons, perhaps from the crowds and neighbors and other people. He's heard of Jesus' powerful and authoritative teaching. But he's also probably heard from his other Pharisee friends that Jesus is a, is a heretic and a blasphemer. And so Simon appears to be someone who's willing to, to at least sort of entertain the question of, of, of who Jesus is. I think that's why he invites Jesus into his home in order to have dinner, so that he can, he can investigate, he can question, he can, he can observe Jesus. And in the course of the meal, in the course of the conversation, Simon concludes definitively that Jesus cannot be a prophet. Is that, is that me? Is that, is that something I'm doing? No. no, okay, all right. I'll keep going then. Um, right, Simon, Simon witnesses Jesus and his interaction with this woman, and what does he say? He says uh, in verse 39, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. In other words, Simon is saying Jesus cannot possibly be a prophet. Jesus cannot be someone sent from God. And he bases that on two assumptions, right, he, he, or, or two tests. He believes that if, that if Jesus were a prophet, Jesus would have prophetic knowledge and prophetic behavior, right? And yet Jesus does not demonstrate prophetic knowledge, nor does he demonstrate prophetic behavior, right, particularly with respect to this woman. And so, and so Simon's uh, investigation is concluded. He knows for a fact that Jesus cannot be a prophet. He cannot be someone sent from God. And we can sort of understand and appreciate the logic of Simon's reasoning here, right? He, he assumes that if Jesus were a prophet, he would have prophetic knowledge. And if he were uh, a prophet, he would, have be, he would behave in a particular way. There's, there's a certain amount of, of reasonableness to this. But of course, Jesus is going to confront Simon and demonstrate, in fact, both that Jesus has prophetic knowledge and that he behaves as a prophet. And he does so by demonstrating that Simon's understanding 
of what it means to have prophetic knowledge and what it means to behave as a prophet is false, right? It's not the problem with the logic that Simon is getting tripped up. It's the problem that Simon's understanding of what it means to actually behave as a prophet is wrong. And of course, Jesus proves that he does have prophetic knowledge, not by demonstrating that he knows who this woman is and, and what she's done, but by showing that he can read Simon's mind, right? Which is even more amazing. Perhaps, you know, any, any random human may have heard about the woman, maybe have seen her on the street corner in the, in the, in the city, right? And any, any random person might have happened upon the knowledge of who this woman was. So the fact that Jesus knew who she was wouldn't have been any particularly impressive thing. But to be able to read Simon's mind and, and show Simon that Jesus knows exactly what's going on in Simon's head shows that Jesus has prophetic knowledge. And if Jesus has prophetic knowledge, if he has this knowledge of Simon, and of course then he also knows who and what this woman is, right? And Jesus indicates that he did actually know, right? Later on in the passage he's going to say, her sins which are many, right? Jesus was not confused. Jesus was not ignorant of who and what this woman was, right? If it's true that Jesus knew who this woman was, then why does he allow her to touch him, right? Jesus still needs to answer that question because Simon's question still remains. If, if he knew who she was, he would not have let her touch him. And, and what Jesus does here is he shows that Simon misunderstands the role of a prophet because Simon misunderstands the character of God, right? The prophet is meant to represent to the people the character of God, and Simon, because he does not understand the character of God and God's love for sinners who are repentant, misunderstands Jesus. Earlier in Luke's Gospel, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus quotes the prophet Isaiah. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus quotes this passage in Isaiah in which, in which Isaiah prophesies that a Messiah is going to come and that this Messiah is going to be anointed by the Spirit. And when this Messiah comes, who's anointed by the Spirit, he is going to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, right? He's going to give sight to the blind and he's, he's going to make the lame walk and he's going to set the prisoner free and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, which is a reference to the year of Jubilee from, uh, from, the, from the Old Testament law. And in the year of Jubilee, every 50 years, Years, all debts were canceled, right? If, if you were an Israelite and you had found yourself in a tough place and you'd had to sell your land, perhaps you'd even had to sell yourself into indentured servitude, when the year of Jubilee came, your debts would be forgiven and you would be given a fresh start. You would be allowed to return to your ancestral home, you would be freed from your indentured servitude, and you would be allowed to start again afresh. And Jesus, in Luke 4, says, I am the one who's come. I am here to heal the blind, to heal the lame, to, to set the prisoner free, and to declare the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is the one who has come to demonstrate the character of God. And he does so by proclaiming the forgiveness of sins. And he reveals that 
in this passage. And so what we see here is, is who, Jesus, who is Jesus? Jesus is a prophet. But even more than that, I think we have further hints at Jesus' identity. Right? I think in this text we actually receive a hint that Jesus is not simply a prophet, but that he is more than a prophet. Notice at the end of the passage that those who were at the table with him, verse 49, say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Who is this who, who forgives sins? Right? And I think that's, a, that's an important question. Who can forgive sins? Well, you can only forgive an offense that has occurred against you, right? If, if, if uh, I came here from afar and, and found out that, that one of you had sinned against another and I said, well, well guess what, I'm going to forgive you, right? I, I wouldn't have the, the right to do that. Only the person who's been offended can forgive an offense. And how much more so with God, right? I cannot forgive you for an offense that you have committed against God. Only God can forgive offenses against him. And that is the very definition of sin. It's an offense against God. And so the people are asking a good question. The question they ask is the question that ought to be asked. Who can forgive sins? Only God. Well, if Jesus forgives sins, and we know that only God can forgive sins... What does that imply about Jesus? And of course, Luke doesn't make it explicit. He doesn't come out and say it. In fact, the question in the text is left open-ended. The story ends fairly abruptly. We don't know how Simon responded. We don't know how the rest of the people responded. We're simply left with this question. And I think the reason is because Luke is inviting us to ask the question for ourselves and then to come to the answer, right? To, to, to recognize the legitimacy of the question and then to follow it to its logical conclusion and, and conclude that Jesus must be a prophet because he has prophetic knowledge and he behaves in the way a, a true prophet of the true God would, but he also must be more than a prophet if he can forgive sins. And so for this first angle, the theological angle, what ought we to believe? I think the application for us is to recognize that Jesus is the divine Son of God, that Jesus has come as God in the flesh in order to forgive sinners. Right? That's what we ought to believe. And if you're here this morning, perhaps you're visiting, perhaps you've been invited by friends, perhaps you don't yet claim any particular faith in Jesus or in God, the challenge of this text is to recognize that, that that is how the Bible presents Jesus. It presents Jesus as the divine and eternal Son of God who has come to forgive the sins of all of those who repent. Now, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, uh, so let's move into the social angle. In other words, what sort of community is Jesus forming? And we know uh, earlier in Luke's gospel that Jesus had picked out 12 apostles, obviously a very significant number if you're familiar with the Old Testament, the, the 12 tribes of Israel, right? So Jesus is essentially reconstituting the people of God. He is reconstituting Israel with himself as the head, right? It's, it's I think, very significant that he doesn't pick 11 
apostles, right? And then he himself would be the 12th. No, he picks 12 apostles because he himself is God over his people, right? And the 12 apostles form the beginning of the new community that Jesus is forming around himself. And so in this text, it's worth looking at what Jesus is doing here and asking what is the kind of community that he is forming and, and who gets to belong to that community. And what we see here is we see two very different people, right? The, the, the difference between them could hardly be more stark. The Pharisee is a man. He's considered to be righteous among the crowds and, and the people, right? He's theologically trained. He's probably ritually clean. Certainly he would at least make every effort to remain ritually clean, and if he became ever ritually unclean, he would go through the process that would enable him to become clean. On the other hand, you have this woman, right? And in that particular culture, being a woman would have been the first strike against her. Women were not particularly uh, well looked at. They were not uh, highly esteemed. Furthermore, she's, she's probably a prostitute, right? She's described as a, as a sinner in the city. That almost certainly means that she was a prostitute. Furthermore, as a prostitute, in, in the course of her work, she probably would have associated with Gentiles, which would have, meant her, which would have made her ritually unclean. And that ritual uncleanness would have barred her from access to the synagogues, and to the temple, right? The, the contrast between these two characters, between these two people, could hardly be more stark. And yet Jesus dignifies this woman by accepting her act of devotion, right? Jesus indicates that the woman belongs to him and belongs to the community that he is forming by allowing her to show her devotion to him, right? What Simon viewed as, 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 a, as a horrible transgression of social and moral norms, Jesus accepts as an act of devotion and a sign of her love and repentance. And I think what's going on here, right, Jesus is dignifying her by accepting her act of devotion. And, and, and I think it's very similar in some ways to, uh, to, to parents who have young children. I've got four uh, children, ages 11 down to three. And, uh, and, and you, you've got, uh, you know, young children, occasionally they, they want to, you know, draw you a picture or, or create some sort of Lego creation or something like that and they and they you know bring it to you as a gift and they say you know I, I made this for you right and and if it was something that you found on, on the street outside you would leave it there right because it is worth absolutely nothing objectively it is not particularly beautiful it's not particularly well done it's not good right but you you accept it you receive it as a way of dignifying the, the, the joy, the love, the care, the effort that they put into that thing, right? And, and if you don't do that, right, if you reject it, how hurtful and damaging and, and sad that is for that child who's, who's invested so much of their love and their enthusiasm and their effort into that thing. 
And I think what Jesus is doing here by receiving this woman's act of devotion, he is, he is indicating his acceptance of her and of the, the sacrifice that she is offering to him. And what I think we see here is that no amount of sin is sufficient to keep you or anyone else out of the community that Jesus is forming. No amount of sin. There is nothing you could do. There is nothing anyone else can do that is sufficient to bar you from Jesus' love and forgiveness if you are repentant and desire uh, to be forgiven. And I think this is, this is something that we really need to wrestle with and struggle both for ourselves and for others. I think some people have a natural tendency um, to guilt and shame, right? They, they, they tend to, to see their own sin and believe that it makes them unacceptable to God. And I think the message here is that there is nothing you could do, no, no secret thought, no secret act that no one else knows about, that you're ashamed of and feel guilty over, that can bar you from fellowship uh, with God in his community. But then conversely, right, if that's true for you, that's also true for everyone else. And we also have a tendency to be judgmental, to compare other people to ourselves and to look at other people more harshly, to see their sins and to judge them more harshly and to, and to wonder and to ask, you know, well, I'm not really sure if they're a Christian because they behave in this way or they act this way or they believe that way or they vote that way, right? And we, and we create uh, these things that we think ought to separate people from the community that Jesus is forming. And I think what Jesus is showing is, is that, in fact, is not true. Right, within our society broadly, and I see this especially on the college campus, right, there's, there's a lot of confusion around sexuality and gender, a lot of just absolutely crazy uh, and, and, and wicked things that are going on in our society. And uh, in fact, I had a conversation uh, on Wednesday with, with a, a college student. We, we had a club fair. She came up to me. Um, to ask about our organization. It was pretty clear that she wasn't there in good faith, that she was there because she had an agenda and that she wanted to engage in an argument with me. And, uh, and, um, and I, I tried to handle that as best I could. You always sort of end up second-guessing yourself and wondering if you could have handled the conversation differently. But it's, it's, it's pervasive within our society. And yet I think it's important for us to ask ourselves and to recognize if someone who was repentant came into our midst and who, who had engaged in the, in the um, most awful behavior, if they came and they were repentant and they desired the love and the forgiveness of Jesus, would we be like the Pharisee, quiet, judgmental, thinking to ourselves, this person doesn't really belong, or would we be like Jesus? happy to receive them uh, in all of their sin and brokenness. And of course, Jesus doesn't, Jesus doesn't excuse sin, right? Jesus doesn't uh, pretend as though the behavior that the woman had engaged in wasn't sin. He says very clearly and explicitly, her sins, which are many, 
right? Sometimes you get people who think, well, you know, Jesus is, is you know, God is, is a God of love, and, and what that means is that he doesn't really care, right? You know, he, he sort of says to people, oh, you know, don't worry about your sin. It, it's not, you know, I don't really care about that sort of thing. I just care about you. That's not true at all, right? That is absolutely not true. God absolutely does care about our sin. In fact, he cares so much about our sin that he himself had to go to the cross to die for it, right? God cares more about sin than anyone else. And yet, what this passage shows us is if that we are willing to be humble and repentant and seek God's forgiveness, there is no sin so great that we will not receive it. And so, on the one hand, uh, we are freed from guilt and shame, and we ought not to allow uh, the devil to, to uh, bar us from fellowship with Jesus and with his people by, uh, by guilting us and shaming us with our sins. And then conversely, we ought not to, to put that guilt and shame upon others if they are truly humble and repentant and desire to come to Jesus and to join the community that he has formed. And so that, that's, the, that's the, the application of the second question, the second angle, the social angle is the community that Jesus is forming is the community of those who are humble and repentant. And it's interesting, I think, that, the, the, that we don't know what happened to the Pharisee. Right? Like the, the question at the end in verse 49, who is this uh, who forgives sins? The, the story ends abruptly. We don't know what happened to the Pharisee. Luke doesn't tell us. And again, I think what's going on there is Luke is inviting us to consider and to ask ourselves, who are we in this story? Are we, are we the woman who acknowledges our sins, or are we the Pharisee, Simon? Um, and, and, and what this shows, though, the fact that, that Luke leaves the story open-ended, that we don't know what happened to Simon, is, I think, in fact, a sign that Jesus is offering forgiveness even to the Pharisee, right? Jesus is pointing to the woman and saying, look, she is a sinner. We all know that. No one is confused about that. But she has been forgiven and saved because she has acknowledged her sin. Are you, Simon, willing to acknowledge your sin? Are you, Simon, willing to come to me humbly seeking forgiveness. Notice the fact that Jesus points out the various different ways in which the woman has actually acted more righteously than Simon. Right? He points to the fact that Simon has violated all sorts of social expectations and customs. That Jesus came as a guest to Simon's house, and yet Simon did not provide any water for his feet. Simon did not greet him with a kiss. Simon did not provide him oil to anoint himself. And in fact, it is the woman who has covered over Simon's sins. It is the woman who has done for Jesus what Simon ought to have done. And Jesus points this fact out to Simon. And the story ends on this, on this cliffhanger, this open-ended question of, of what is Simon going to do? Is he going to acknowledge his sin? Is he going to acknowledge the way in which he has offered an offense to Jesus? Or is he going to remain stubborn and unrepentant? 
And I think that's partly why the first angle, the theological angle, is important. Because if Jesus really were a, a, her a heretic and a blasphemer, maybe we could excuse Simon for the social uh, faux pas that he committed. Right? If Jesus is, is really a, a heretic and a blasphemer, then I, perhaps it's okay not to provide Jesus with water. Perhaps it's okay not to greet him with a kiss. Perhaps it's okay not to give him oil to anoint himself. And yet, in fact, Jesus isn't a, a blasphemer and a heretic. Jesus is a prophet and more than a prophet. And so, Simon has not simply failed to do all of these things for just any other guest. He has failed to do them for God in the flesh. And part of Simon's problem is that he looks at the woman and he sees her sins very clearly. And he thinks her sins are worse than his. But what could be worse than intentionally offending God come in the flesh to visit your home? And so what we see here, I think this is a love story, but it's not the sort of love story we expect, right? It's not a love story between the prostitute and the Pharisee, which if Hollywood were making a movie, that's what it would be about, right? But it's actually a story of Jesus' love for both of them and for his invitation to both of them to join his community and to learn to love each other. And that takes us to the, to the final uh, point, that the individual angle. What is, what, is, what is my place in this? What is your place in this? And I think what we see here in this text is that the, the application for us is that we ought to acknowledge our sin both to ourselves, to God, and to others. Right? Uh, J Jesus tells this parable of, of the, 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 man, the two men who are forgiven. One is forgiven 500 denarii, the other 50. And he asks, you know, who, who loves more? And Simon says, the one who is, who is forgiven more. And Jesus says, that's correct, right? And, and I think what's going on here, the woman knows her sin. She recognizes her sin. And so she has a deep love for God and for Jesus in particular, because she experiences forgiveness. The issue with Simon is not that he had sinned little. Right? The, the answer for Simon is not that he ought to leave his life as a Pharisee and go live a, a, a sinful and licentious life for a couple years, you know, leave his, his wife and his children and, and, uh, and, and go into the city and do all sorts of wicked things and then come back and say, oh, look at all these sins I've committed. Thank you, Jesus, for forgiving them. Now I love much, right? It, it doesn't serve, it wouldn't serve him, it wouldn't serve his family, it wouldn't serve society, and it certainly wouldn't serve Jesus for Simon to do that. The problem with Simon is not that he has sinned little. The problem with Simon is that he doesn't see his sin. And so he doesn't realize how much he actually needs forgiveness. Right? And, 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 and what we see here is that Jesus is pointing to the fact that the woman knows clearly and unambiguously her sins. She, she does not engage in any of the sort of delusions or self-deceptions that we all engage in to try and hide and minimize our sins. Right? We all do this. We all, we all have this sense uh, of, of wanting to make ourselves better than we are. And so, so sometimes when we talk about our sins, we use euphemisms. Right? I, I do this. I, I occasionally say, well, I struggle with self-discipline. 
instead of simply saying, well, I'm lazy, right? Or you could say, well, I'm a, I'm a particularly passionate person, instead of saying, I'm an angry person, right? So we, we use euphemisms to sort of hide and minimize our sin, or, or perhaps we explain it away according to our circumstances, right? You know, I, I got angry with my wife and kids because I've got a headache, or because I was up late last night and I, and I, and I you know, haven't had the rest that I need, right? Or, or we cut someone off on, on the highway and, and we say, well, I'm in, I'm in a new, new town, new city, I don't really know the roads, I didn't realize my turn was there. It's, it's not that I'm a bad driver or, or I'm a bad person on the road, it's just that the circumstances cause me to act in that way. And yet when someone else cuts us off, we think, man, what a jerk. Why did they do that? Right? Like, we excuse our own sin by appealing to our circumstances, but we explain other people's sins by pointing to the fact that that's just who they are. Right? So we, we, we minimize our sins with euphemisms. We, we excuse our sins um, by, uh, by appealing to our circumstances, right? Or extenuating circumstances. And we do that in order to feel better about ourselves, particularly in comparison to others. And what Jesus is showing us is we don't need to do that. Right? We can be honest with ourselves and with others. Right? In fact, the road to growth in love for God starts by an honest assessment of all of our sins. We are freed from all the attempts of self-justification and we can simply be honest about who we are and how much we need Jesus' forgiveness. Right? The Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, one of the last books that Paul wrote uh, before his death, he describes himself as the chief of sinners. Earlier, in, in Paul's earlier books, he describes himself as the least of the apostles. And then he describes himself as a sinner. And, and at the end of his life, he describes himself as the chief, the foremost of sinners. A life lived in faithfulness to God has shown him how great his sin is, and yet how great his God is. And I think that's the answer for us, is that is that if we want to grow in love for God, it means being honest with ourselves, being honest with God, and being honest with others about our sin, and receiving the forgiveness that God has promised to all, irrespective of any sins you have committed, if you come to him humbly and with uh, the desire to receive his forgiveness. Let me close uh, in prayer. Dear Jesus, we give you thanks uh, for your word. We give you thanks for this story of your interactions with the, the prostitute and the Pharisee. Lord, we pray that you would help us to, um, to be honest with ourselves, to be honest with others, um, to uh, be completely forthright of our need for forgiveness. Uh, and in admitting our own need for forgiveness, that we would extend grace and, and, and forgiveness to others that we would form a community that is characterized by the love, uh, the grace, and the forgiveness that you have shown to us. Uh, all of this centered around who you are, uh, God come in the flesh uh, to redeem his people. 
We pray all these things in your name. Amen.